presenting this month's special series, Focus on Sports Medicine. We're talking to experts in the field about sports and exercise-related injuries and the latest advances in diagnosis, treatment, and prevention to help your patients stay active. Does every knee need a meniscus? What are the latest research and treatment modalities orthopaedic surgeons are using for meniscus-deficient patients? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Luchars, and joining me today from New York is Dr. Scott Rodeo. Dr. Rodeo is Professor of Orthopaedic Surgery at the Weill Medical College of Cornell University. He's co-chief of the Sports Medicine and Shoulder Service at the Hospital for Special Surgery. He's also a clinical scientist and team physician for the New York Giants. Today, we're going to discuss meniscal replacement in the knee joint. Welcome, Dr. Rodeo. Thank you. Describe what we know about the function of the meniscus in the knee. Well, the menisci are very important structures. Essentially, they act as shock absorbers. They transmit load across the knee, and there's a meniscus on the inner and outer side of each knee. So meniscus injuries are very common. You know, tears of the meniscus occur. And, and the problem with meniscal injuries is they have very little healing potential. So surgery is often required to remove the torn piece of meniscus. Although that improves the current symptoms, the problem is with loss of the meniscus, now you've lost some of this shock-absorbing function of this tissue. And over time, there is a distinctly increased risk of arthritis. So the menisci serve to protect the joint surface and prevent arthritis. What are the symptoms of a meniscus-deficient knee? Typically pain and swelling. Really, you talk about kind of an early arthritis type of picture. Activity-related pain, weight-bearing activities cause pain, certainly impact activities in particular in recreational athletes and runners and things, as well as mild swelling. And how do you assess a patient before considering a meniscal transplant? Right. I mean, meniscus transplantation is something we've been doing in recent years in an effort to essentially replace the lost function of the meniscus. We've learned that the results can be good if it's done early in the process. By that I mean before there is advanced arthritis in the knee. So a careful evaluation is really imperative. So we start with a careful physical examination and then to make sure that there are no other problems in the knee as far as ligament instability or malalignment. But then the evaluation is really carried out with imaging studies, x-rays as well as MRI. And the things we want to look for is to make sure that there are no advanced degenerative changes in that area of the knee. So we look at the MRI to look at the cartilage, and we look at the x-rays to look at the alignment in the leg so that everything else is normal. Or other things may be identified that need to be addressed in addition to meniscus transplantation. When was meniscal transplantation first described in medical literature? The first ones were done in the mid-1980s, just over 20 years ago, in association with transplantation of the upper part of the tibia in the setting of tumor reconstruction. So the first ones were done in that setting. Free meniscus transplantation for in the setting of what we're talking about, kind of early arthritis in the late 1980s. And was that done in the USA? That was first done in Germany. The first ones done in this country were right around 1990. That's about when we started doing these at the Hospital for Special Surgery here in New York. When was the first one that you did? When I started my practice in 1996. And we were talking about assessing a patient before considering meniscal transplantation. What are the contraindications? What patients don't you want to do this procedure on? Yeah, the biggest contraindication is too much arthritis. Once there's too much wear in the knee, the patient's probably beyond that point where a meniscus transplantation will survive and do well inside the knee. Once there's a lot of arthritis, the mechanical environment and the joint surface is kind of harsh and the tissue doesn't do well. So you really it's the degree of arthritis is the most important thing. Second would be malalignment. So a knee that's sort of, if you think of the, your, the kind of a bow-legged person, 
in that person, there's much more load going to the inner side of the knee. In that setting, you would not want to put in a meniscus in that area. Rather, you should do what's called an osteotomy to cut the bone and realign the leg to normalize the alignment. Can we talk now about what materials you use for meniscal replacement or transplantation? Traditionally, we've used human cadaveric tissue. So these are it's allograft tissue. It's human meniscal tissue, which is okay, but it has its limitations. There's a limitation in supply because these need to be sized appropriately for the patient's knee. So it can take anywhere from three to six months to identify and obtain a, an appropriately sized meniscus. We work with various tissue banks to get this tissue. So for that reason, there's been a lot of effort and investigation into synthetic materials for meniscus replacement. There is a device that's called a collagen meniscus implant, which is basically a collagen scaffold, kind of a, a meniscus-shaped material that is the synthetic material that, that kind of supports a reparative response. And you, this can be transplanted into a meniscal defect. There's a, a number of different groups working on other approaches. We've done some work with an industry, an industrial company, using a polyurethane, an absorbable polyurethane material, again, as a synthetic meniscus. And there's some promise to these different types of synthetic materials. The nice thing is they're off the shelf. They're available you know, immediately versus having to wait to identify a suitably sized meniscus transplant. And the other issue with transplanted human tissue is the small but real risk of disease transmission that comes with any tissue transplantation. So there's real potential with the synthetic materials. How critical is the size of the graft? It probably is quite critical. We don't truly know what the tolerance of the joint is for size mismatch, but we think that it should be within two millimeters of your native meniscus. So what we'll do is we can size the meniscus based on your bony dimensions as well as looking at the meniscus in your other knee to identify that the size it should be. And we like to be within two millimeters of that. So there probably are fairly tight tolerances. You mentioned earlier uh, polyurethane as a substance for meniscal replacement. What sort of evidence is there for long-term wear and tear of the knee using this polyurethane? Not good long-term evidence. Good question. There is some animal data demonstrating that the material is well tolerated by the joint. It will not lead to abrasive changes on the adjacent cartilage. It does support kind of a cellular cells kind of infiltrate into this material, and then they can the cells can start to synthesize a new matrix, new material within the polyurethane. So they can work and they can support tissue formation. But long-term results, very little. And so that's where we need, that's kind of the next step. And they are being done in a limited number now in Europe as well, in, in a trial. And so we hope to look to that data to learn more about how this material performs in the joint. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Mary Lushars, your host. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Scott Rodeo from the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. We're discussing meniscal transplantation in the knee joint. Dr. Rodeo... What is the exact surgical technique used to replace a meniscus? Well, it's an arthroscopic-assisted approach. So it's, it's done with an arthroscope inside the knee to kind of prepare the joint and the surfaces and everything to put the meniscus in. We're going to transplant the meniscus with small pieces of bone attached to each end, the front and back part of it. So we make small 9-millimeter drill tunnels in the knee. That's all done arthroscopically. But we do need a small incision in the front of the knee to actually bring the meniscus in, just about an inch, inch and a half long incision. The rest is done arthroscopically inside the knee. So it's what we call an arthroscopic-assisted approach. Do you ever do it in conjunction with an anterior cruciate reconstruction? Absolutely, yes. Many of these are often done in sort of complex knees where you combine it with something else, like an ACL reconstruction, as you say, or a procedure to kind of resurface a cartilage defect on the joint surface. I've even done some in conjunction with osteotomy where we're cutting and realigning the bone to kind of normalize the alignment. So it can be part of a complex procedure in a knee. 
Do you usually replace the lateral and the medial meniscus or just one or the other more common? Usually it's one or the other. It's uncommon to do both. I have done on occasion where we've done both sides, but usually it's one or the other. And how does the rehab post-op differ for a patient who's had the meniscal transplant versus someone who's just had a regular ACL reconstruction, a meniscectomy? Right. It's definitely much more conservative. After It's a slower rehab after a meniscus transplant. We'll keep patients essentially non-weight-bearing for six weeks' time to let that meniscus graft heal, whereas in contrast, after simple meniscectomy, they can weight-bear right away. After ACL surgery, patients are partial weight-bearing for 10 to 14 days, and then they're kind of full weight-bearing by two weeks. So it's definitely slower after a meniscus transplantation. Can elite athletes, for example, your New York Giants footballers, get back to elite competition after having this procedure? Have you ever done it on someone like that? We have not. We haven't. Um, And maybe they could. I have done some in some athletes. You know, they've gone back to high-level activities. In general, this has been done in patients that have, you know, a little bit of wear in the knee, and your goal is just to kind of get them back to more lighter recreational activities. That said, as we do these in earlier in good, healthy knees, I've had athletes get back to high-load activities, so it certainly is possible. Is the goal of surgery sometimes also just for pain relief? It is. Frankly, the more predictable goal of surgery is just that. It's relief of current symptoms, pain and swelling. The other goal of surgery, if you will, would be to try to prevent degenerative changes over time, over the years. It makes sense theoretically that restoring the meniscus can do that, but we frankly don't have great evidence yet to truly prove that statement. So what we do know, we can improve current symptoms. Is there a patient age that you would not consider performing meniscal replacement on? There's no absolutes, but in general, over age 55 or so, in that setting, oftentimes a little bit more wear in the knee, and you're usually not going to do it. Um, That said, we, we have done in patients up to that age, and so really a lot of it depends on the health of the knee. What are the signs of failure of the transplant? Are there any of them clinically silent? Yeah, they can be, honestly. Typically, the failure will manifest as pain and swelling, kind of recurrence of symptoms. We've used MRI to carefully evaluate the healing meniscus transplant. Sometimes they are kind of clinically silent, where you'll see breakdown and sort of what you would probably call a failure of that transplant, yet the patient's doing well symptomatically still. We don't entirely understand that mismatch between symptoms and the objective findings on MRI, but it definitely can exist. And what are the exact biological changes that occur in a meniscal transplant? The tissue that's transplanted is essentially a, it's a dead piece of tissue. Most of these are frozen that most of us use, and so the patient's own cells will invade that tissue and repopulate the transplanted meniscus. So your own host cells will invade into the tissue and essentially begin to proliferate and synthesize matrix protein. So it's a dynamic, this remodeling or incorporation process, which happens with all transplanted tissue, definitely um, affects how the meniscus graft functions and performs. How did you develop a personal interest in meniscal transplantation? Well, I have an interesting complex knee reconstruction, including cartilage injury, ligament, as well as meniscus. And so it kind of followed from that. And then the idea, especially of trying to really replace lost function, is attractive because we have it's such a common problem. We have a lot of patients that are active, that demand and expect now an active lifestyle well into their later years, but at the same time that have lost their meniscus. And we know the natural history of meniscus loss is not good. It's one of gradual degeneration. So it's a huge clinical need. And so the ability to do something to kind of forestall changes is attractive and we can help a lot of patients in this area. Do you think the availability of transplantation in the future will mean more surgeons perform meniscectomies rather than meniscal repairs? Hopefully not, because it's still, again, an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure. It's much better to preserve the the native meniscus. And honestly, it's a complex procedure. It's technically fairly difficult. Again, graft availability is an issue. It's a slow rehab. So it's, boy, it's something that's seen as kind of one of your, you know, kind of last steps, quite honestly. So I still make the point that we should try to salvage and repair a meniscus when at all possible. How do you see the future of this procedure? What would you like to see happen? 
I think we will see the development of novel synthetic materials that will be available kind of off the shelf, if you will, that will be able to size these perfectly for the patient. They'll avoid any of the issues associated with rejection or disease transmission from transplanted tissue. I think that the way this will probably go in the future is it'll be a combination of new materials plus biologic enhancements. By that, I mean using stem cells or growth factors. I think eventually we'll probably have some material that we seed with cells outside of the body and then transplant this material. So now we have a material, a synthetic, that has the contained cells that are all kind of revved up and starting to synthesize the appropriate proteins so we can have a kind of a tissue-engineered approach to meniscus replacement. How many countries in the world at the moment are developing synthetic meniscal replacements? Only a handful. I mean, there's some work going on in a couple of countries in Europe and as well as here in the United States. So you, know, you need a interested individuals, you need the appropriate biomaterials expertise as well as the ability to test these things, as well as you know, the startup capital and things that are so important in any of these new approaches. Well, my thanks to Dr. Scott Rodeo, who's been our guest today. We've been discussing meniscal replacement in the knee. I'm Dr. Mary Lushars. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions through our website at reachmd.com, which now features our entire medical show library in on-demand podcasts. Thanks very much for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Sports Medicine. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at reachmd.com.